Something I often start sermons with is just a, uh, I guess, an invitation uh, to bring your whole person to our time of, uh, of worship, for our time of consideration of the scripture. Uh, we live in an increasingly real world, and even if we can keep ourselves from it, uh, we're confronted with the realities of the harshness of the world. So I encourage you guys, bring your problems, bring your troubles, bring your concerns um, to the, the time of worship, to consideration uh, this morning as we consider the scripture. <clears throat> so, we have all the reason in the world to not love the world, right? The world is uh, harsh and it's ugly. It's not lacking in evil. Men and women have all the reasons in the world to not love the world, and it seems a week doesn't pass without another reason being added to that list. Across the globe, religiously motivated mass murders take place on a regular basis. Here at home, we're staunchly divided racially, ethnically, socioeconomically, politically. The list could go on. Some have argued uh, that the attacks in Paris just nine days ago, and it's hard to believe that they were only nine days ago because of how much tragedy has happened since then, received an unfair amount of attention compared to similar attacks that happened in uh, the Middle East or in Africa. But as I thought about that, there is a unique familiarity between France and America. There's a unique familiarity, uh, which isn't simply a white similarity, it's a Western similarity. A similarity not based solely on the fact that some of us, myself included, look like some of those who were attacked and killed and injured, but rather so many of us as Westerners live like so many of the Parisians. That's what resonated with me the most about the attacks in Paris. At least for me, that was the single resonating item until I saw this. You stole away the life of an exceptional being, the love of my life, the mother of my son, but you will not have my hatred. I do not know who you are, and I don't want to know. You are dead souls. If the God for whom you killed so blindly made us in his image, each bullet in my wife's body would have been a wound in his heart. Therefore, I will not give you the gift of hating you. You have obviously sought it, but responding to it with anger would be to give in to the same ignorance that has made you what you are. You want me to be afraid? to cast a mistrustful eye on my fellow citizens, to sacrifice my freedom for security, you lost. Same player, same game. I saw her this morning, finally after nights and days of waiting. She was just as beautiful as she was when she left on Friday evening, as beautiful as when I fell madly in love with her more than 12 years ago. Of course, I'm devastated with grief. I will give you that tiny victory. But this will be a short-term grief. I know that she will join us every day and that we will find each other again in a paradise of free souls, which you will never have access to. We are only two, my son and I, but we are more powerful than all the world's armies. 
In any case, I have no more time to waste on you. I need to get back to Melville, who is waking up from his afternoon nap. He's just 17 months old. He'll eat his snack like every day, and then we're going to play like we do every day. And every day of his life, this little boy will insult you with his happiness and freedom. Because you don't have his hatred either. Antoine Eris. Anton's response uh, to the murder of his wife is almost unfathomable, encompassing the absolute best of humanity. Poetic, romantic, hopeful, and just the right amount of what seems like righteous anger and judgment. Which we heard in his phrases like, I do not know who you are and I do not want to know. You are dead souls. I will not give you the gift of hating you. I know she will join us every day and that we will find each other again in the paradise of free souls, which you will never have access to. See, men and women have all the reasons in the world to not love the world, but we have no right. Because we're all cut from the same fabric. We're all human, broken, flawed, marked, and marred by sin, whether that sin is obvious or not. This is the reality that was so articulately captured uh, by the Scottish pastor. His name is Robert Murray McShane. And here's what he said. The seeds of all sins are in my heart. And perhaps all the more dangerously that I do not see them. See, this is what Jesus was on about when he said that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his own heart. And it's what he's talking about when he likens hate to murder. We have all the reason to hate the world, but we have no right because we are the world. We are the world. Meanwhile, God has all the reason in the world to not love the world, and he has all of the right as well because he is the only whole, flawless, sinless being. Yet what the scriptures proclaim is that God loves the world. Today and next Sunday, we'll be considering the most famous of all scriptures, John 3.16. And I'm glad I didn't hear any sighs there, because I know that familiarity can breed contempt. Uh, In a sermon series entitled, Whoever and Forever. This Sunday, next Sunday, John 3.16, Whoever, Forever. For those of you who are new to City Church, again, we're so thankful that you chose to be here with us this morning. Uh, And if you're joining us by podcast or app, uh, my name is Sean Little, and I'm the community and teaching pastor here at City Church. Go ahead and find John 3.16 in your Bible uh, that some of you brought with you in the app. And also, again, just a reminder about the app, you can follow along with my sermon notes in the little section that is cleverly titled, Sermon Notes. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.16 is arguably the most famous of all scriptures. It's so clear and concise that it can exist without context. Millions of modern men and women have seen John 3.16 been exposed to it at sports games, whether that's scrawled on signs or t-shirts or painted onto people's faces. Uh, John 3.16 is printed on the bottom of the cups at In-N-Out, and I hear, now I don't know this, but I hear it's also printed on the bottom of Forever 21 shopping bags. 
And while it can and often does exist without context, context is king. So let me catch us up on what's been happening and what led Jesus to say this most famous of verses. It's right in the middle of a conversation, a dialogue between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. And it's nighttime in Jerusalem. Nicodemus has used nightfall as a cover to inconspicuously go to Jesus. Because Nicodemus is an accredited academic. He's an elite scholar of the Torah. He's a well-known and prestigious Pharisee. He occupies one of the limited 71 seats of the Judean Supreme Court. He's cluttered with credentials and covered with clout, which many of you guys can relate to. But tonight, Nicodemus wants to speak with Jesus, this controversial carpenter turned teacher who just made a scene in and a mess of the temple. Flipping tables, pouring out cash registers, and driving people and animals out of the temple with a handmade whip. So you you see, as as a part of the religious rulers, seeking to speak with Jesus could actually be problematic for Nicodemus. It could be a risk. He risked being othered, and he risked being ostracized. But maybe Nicodemus has heard of the miracles. Maybe he was in the temple, and he saw Jesus, and he heard Jesus when Jesus tore the temple up. Regardless, there's no question in his mind. There's something about this Jesus. There's something about him. So Nicodemus opens the dialogue. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who came from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. In other words, Jesus, I'm familiar with your work, and frankly, I'm impressed. I have to wonder if Nicodemus was just sharing social graces, right, expecting to get the same from Jesus. Well, 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 that's so kind of you, Nicodemus. I do dabble in divinity. But enough about me, let's talk about you. You, sir, are quite the academic. Your study of the Torah is rather impressive. Your good works are beyond questions. Quite the holy man, aren't you? But Jesus says nothing of the like. Rather, he cuts to the chase. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And the text doesn't indicate this, but I can only imagine that Nicodemus kind of crinkled his brow, stuttered stammered before he responded to Jesus. See, Nicodemus has been indoctrinated with the idea that the Messiah was going to return to place Israel back in its rightful position as the preeminent world power. But not until the people of Israel got their act together and started behaving and obeying the law that Nicodemus and his Pharisee buddies behaved so well. Excuse me, Jesus, you must be joking. I thought I heard you say no one can see the kingdom unless they're born again, which doesn't even make sense because how can a man be reborn? How can a man enter back into his mother's womb? And Jesus responds, well, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. And if you're feeling lost, you're feeling like Nicodemus. But what Jesus means is that natural produces natural. So you can put the, rega- the, the garments of religion on a human, but they're still human. They may be a religious person, but they're no less a person. Those garments can cloak, but they cannot change. And what we need is not self-help. What we need is supernatural help. 
And this revelation is devastating to to Nicodemus. It completely tips the scale of his reality. It's a pendulum swing away from everything that he knows, everything that he understands, everything he values, everything he practices. And maybe Jesus like realized that and he's like, well, may as well drop the hammer. So what he says to him, which brings us full circle, is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now I want to focus in on the first portion of this verse this week and we'll cover the second portion next week. The first portion we're going to focus in on is for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And I'd like to piece it out into four different parts. Uh, and, And the four different parts just all happen to start with the letter P. So you can jot them down if that'll help you remember them. His person, his posture, his proof, and his price. First, the person of God, which we see here in this opening phrase, for God. Now this is more of a surprise to us than it would have been to Nicodemus, but Jesus doesn't discuss or debate the existence and reality of God. The person of God. In passing, I'm fascinated by people who want to affirm and accept that Jesus was a great moral teacher and that Jesus was even a great human while simultaneously denying the existence of the very God that Jesus taught about and in fact claimed to be. In a recent conversation, I was asked by a friend of mine, if Jesus was not the Messiah, If he was not the savior of humanity, wouldn't you still be inspired and influenced by him? My answer was and is no. If I didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, I wouldn't pay him a penny's worth of attention. I wouldn't pay him a penny's worth of attention. I wouldn't include him in the circle of great thinkers and artists and theologians and and musicians who I read and who I study and who I consider, who I'm influenced by, who I'm inspired by, because this fundamental claim about who God is and that he is God, if they're not true, would disqualify him from being trustworthy. You guys know the Jimmy Fallon show? You know the band that plays on the Jimmy Fallon show? They're called The Roots. Uh, The good-looking, dark-skinned brother is named uh, Black Thought, Tariq Trotter. He's one of my favorite rappers. Uh, And I follow him, and I listen to him, and I pay attention to him because of lines like this. He said, I'm backstage questioning questioning if who y'all praise is worthy of praise. He's so deeply human. He's vulnerable. He's accessible. If Jesus' claims aren't true, he's not trustworthy. You can't be a great teacher if you teach about the person of God and God doesn't exist. That would be like being a great economist and, and, and believing that money grows on trees. You can't be a great human if you claim in your humanity to be God and God does not exist. You would be untrustworthy. You'd be a lunatic, the person of God. Second, the posture of God, which we see in the phrase, so loved the world. What I mean by the posture of God is his primary attitude or his disposition. How does God feel about us? Humans, globally, locally, how does God feel about me? How does God feel about my enemy? The answer for many people, dare I say most, would range from indifference over to disgust. Either he spun this whole entire thing into existence eons ago, 
threw his hands up, and walked away from it. Or he's vehemently opposed to us. He hates us. He's fed up with us. We make him sick. We're simply sinners in the hands of an angry God. This was the attitude of the Pharisees, by the way. Maybe this was the attitude of Nicodemus. They were disgusted with people, other people. In their line of thinking, and in many people's lines of thinking, God essentially hates humanity. So he has to be placated. That's the predominant view of God that has been and is taught. So even nowadays, in our culture, that's the predominant view of God. Does anyone watch Walking Dead? I do. I love it. Okay. So maybe this will rock with some of y'all. This attitude... Right? That, 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 that religion is condemning and that God hates people uh, is so well personified in the person of Gabriel, Father Gabriel. You guys know that character? No clearer uh, than an interaction that he has with a gal named Sasha at the end of season five. And my man Reed was like, hold on now. Do you need to give a spoiler alert? I don't need to give a spoiler alert. This isn't that primary to the plot. But Sasha... The girl, she's burdened with guilt. She's overwhelmed. She's hopeless. So she flees to Father Gabriel, his little mock-up sanctuary. She says, I came here because I don't know what to do. Can you help me? No, Father Gabriel responds. Sasha says, I think I want to die. Father Gabriel says, why wouldn't you want to die? You don't deserve to be here. You don't deserve to be here. That infuriates Sasha. She wrestles him to the ground and puts a gun to his head. And that's a word to the wise, all you pastors, don't be mean to people, otherwise you get a gun to your head. Before she can shoot him, there's a gal named Maggie, and you'll see her up on the screen. Maggie busts in, she breaks him up, um, and Father Gabriel is crying on the ground. He says, you should have let her shoot me. They died. They all died because of me. Maggie agrees, yes, they did die because of you. And then she extends her hand down, and I like teared up. I was like, wait a second, this is walking dead. I'm not supposed to be crying. She extends her hand down to Father Gabriel, helps him up. Father Gabriel is the religious figure, one of condemnation. He hates himself, and he hates everyone else. Sasha is the picture of humanity, broken, burdened, searching. She goes to religion, but religion condemns her. Then there's Maggie, this beautiful type of Jesus. She intercedes between the guilty anger of Sasha and the religious condemnation of Gabriel. She affirms Gabriel's fault, but then she helps the faulty. Then the scene, and we'll we'll pop that picture back up on the screen. Uh, The scene ends with Maggie leading them in a prayer. And I love Sasha's look. She's like, yo, I'm praying, but like I got an eye on you, Gabriel, because you're crazy. Quickly, take a look at the next verse, John chapter 3, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. I have a question. How would it change your life? Not just your spiritual life, not just your Christian life, not just your church life. How would it change your entire life if you could believe and embrace And take into your inner person what Jesus is saying here. God loves you. Not the best you. Not the future version of you. Not the cleaned up and put together version of you. But the current you. The concealed you. 
the worst you, the real you, exactly as you are. In the midst of your deceptiveness and manipulation, in the midst of your addiction and indulgence, in the midst of your lies and hypocrisy, in the midst of your insecurity and fear, in the midst of your cold-hearted, skeptical cynicism, in your prayerlessness, in your lack of spirituality, however that looks. That's the message of Jesus. Nicodemus, God loves people. He doesn't hate them. People, by the way, uh, in the most generic and inclusive and macro sense, all people, humanity, everyone in the world. In, the world. in fact, the, the Greek word that is translated to world is cosmos, which is where we get the world cosmos, the, the word cosmos, forgive me. Not only the world, the universe. That's God's posture. It's one of love towards the universe. That's the same word that John the Baptist uses when he proclaims, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, which is a very challenging thought for us this morning if we bring our whole self to worship. I want to jog your memory and briefly return our attention to the video that I played uh, just a few minutes ago. Anton, the widower. Ellen, the innocent victim. Melville, the 17-month-old son. Well, of course, God loves those people, right? An innocent, beautiful wife and mother whose life was maliciously cut short. A seemingly compassionate widower who tragically lost the love of his life. A toddler too young to comprehend the complexity of all of it. Of course God loves those people. But what Jesus says is that God entirely, equally, and unequivocally loves the men who murdered Ellen in cold blood. Loves the men who made a widower and single father of Anton. Loves the men who made uh, Melville into a motherless child. The posture of God, for God so loved the world. Third, the proof of God, which we see here in the phrase, that he gave. Years ago, uh, when, when my wife Erin and I were just dating, uh, we were starry-eyed and wet behind the ears and you couldn't tell us nothing, my father-in-law made this comment. He said, love don't pay the bills. That's kind of echoed throughout my memory all these years. Obviously, I was too young and too stupid to even care to think about understanding what he was talking about. But what he was talking about was a naive love, a nice love, a sweet love, a pretty love, a happy love, a holiday love, a hallmark love. At best, an incomplete love and arguably not love at all. A love the Beatles sang, a love on the lips of so many modern men and women, a love so many of my fellow millennials speak so freely and assuredly about. All we need is love. Love is the answer. But that kind of love is often so cheap, it don't pay the bills. Love is not cheap. Love costs. Love, in fact, pays the bills. As Dr. Rodney Whitaker said, God is love, and then he defined love. Love is the laying down of one's life. That's what love is. It's God, and it's the laying down of one's life. That's the love my father-in-law was talking about. That's the love that C.S. Lewis was talking about when he wrote this, and it'll be up on the screen so you can follow along. Tell me this isn't timely nowadays. Of course, what people mean when they say that God is love is often something quite different. 
They really mean that love is God. They really mean that our feelings of love, however and wherever they arise and whatever results they produce, are to be treated with great respect. Perhaps they are. But that is something quite different from what Christians mean by the statement, God is love. See, what Jesus is saying is that God didn't just talk about love. Speak it, sing it, post it, tweet it, status update it, hashtag it. God lived love. God died love. As 1 John proclaims, God is love. And you know what God did? He gave. He acted. He put a ring on it. He proved it. The proof of God, seen in our fourth point, is the price of God. Fourth, the price of God, which is in the phrase, his one and only son. Uh, In the words of the great pastor and theologian, Sir Jeff Kincaid, Jesus came to earth not to change God's mind, but to express God's mind. So many of us suffer from deficient Christology, which is commonly expressed in thinking about Jesus and God in terms of good cop and bad cop. God is the bad cop. Angry and disappointed with people, their humanity, their shortcomings, their sin. Jesus is the good cop who steps in to placate God by dying on the cross for sin. So it's it's certainly not that God loves men and women, but he tolerates them because of what Jesus did. Many people live with this notion, and its effects are just profoundly toxic. Personally, psychologically, relationally, theologically, this false dichotomy leads to the conclusion, and I'm sure you guys have seen signs like this, God hates, Jesus saves. God hates, Jesus saves. Consider again the first half of this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God, he, his. Jesus does not placate God. Jesus personifies God. Jesus came to earth not to change God's mind, but to express God's mind. I read a a New Testament um, that's a J.B. Phillips translation. So I borrowed from the the J.B. Phillips translation here, uh, Colossians 1.15 and then 19 and 20. So verse 15 in the Phillips said, Christ is the visible expression of the invisible God. Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. It was in him that the full nature of God chose to live, and through him God planned to reconcile in his own person, as it were, everything on earth and everything in heaven by the virtue of the sacrifice on the cross. God himself suffered on the cross. He didn't send a messenger, one of his homeboys, to do the dirty work. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Let that settle in. As we approach our our conclusion, um, I want to draw a comparison. Returning for the last time to Anton in the video. I said that Anton's response is what resonated with me more than anything else in light of the attacks in Paris. Again, it's the best of humanity. But humanity's best falls hopelessly short of God's holiness. 
which is illuminated when we compare his phrases, Anton's phrases, to the very heart of the gospel. Anton says, I do not know who you are, and I don't want to know you are dead souls. The gospel says, I do know you. I want to know you. And while your sinful soul stands condemned, dead in your trespasses, I am not content with your condemnation. Anton says, I will not give you the gift of hating you. The gospel says, I will give you the gift of eternal life. Anton says, I know she will join us every day and that we will find each other again in the paradise of free souls, which you will never have access to. The gospel says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. See, Anton may have been killing his enemy with kindness, but still his intention was the death of his enemy, right? Do we get that? Whereas God in Jesus suffered once for all of our sins, dying his enemy's death to impart to them his own life. As I prepared for the sermon, I was reminded that John 3.16 is, is most notably communicated to non-believers, right? That's the primary way the tool of John 3.16 is used. Uh, understandably so. It's clear. It's concise. It's compelling. There's a God. He loves you. And on the cross, he has given the precious life of his perfect son so that you may believe and by believing inherit the gift of eternal life. But what struck me is that when Jesus first said this, he didn't say it to a non-believer. He said it to a believer, a theist, a Pharisee, a religious ruler. Do you see where I'm going here? The religious are in equal need of the Savior. I have a final illustration. Uh, Here in a couple weeks, Aaron and I won't see you guys for a couple of weeks. Uh, Regrettably, uh, we'll be gone in Hawaii uh, for my sister-in-law's wedding. It was really sweet to share in their excitement when they called and said, hey, we're getting married. It was, you know, it was sweet. But what was really sweet is when they called back and invited us to their wedding in Hawaii in December instead of Evansville in December. But we were faced with this dilemma because even though we wanted to go, Tickets to Hawaii during the holidays are like mad expensive, too expensive for us to be able to afford them. So what we had was this invitation from someone who loved us to a beautiful place to celebrate fellowship and a joyous occasion, but we had no way to get there. We couldn't do anything to bridge that gap. And really, no, sooner than we had time for that thought to settle in, uh, they, they called us back and say, hey, we want to give you guys $2,000. We love you. We want you where we are because our celebration would be incomplete if you weren't there with us. The least we could do is help you to make it happen. More than enough money to cover all of our travel expenses to Hawaii. Now, there are a few responses that we could have had to this offer, incredibly generous, costly, joyous invitation that they extended. First, pride. How dare you offer me your money? I work hard, I make my own money. And even if I didn't, I'm strong enough to swim the Pacific. I'm smart enough to create a vessel to get us there. Why are y'all laughing at that? <laughs> I've been doing push-ups, come on. 
How dare you offer me what I'm more than capable of providing myself? Pride. Pity. Oh, I'm so lowly. I don't work hard enough. I don't make enough money. I didn't plan properly. I wish I would have. I knew this was coming. I knew this day was coming. If I weren't so poor, if I weren't so irresponsible, if I weren't so weak, then I could make it. But as it is, I just can't. Pity. Pride. Pity. Or appreciation. Oh, word. $2,000. Let's go. Accepting and appreciating the gift. Because without them, without it, I, we wouldn't be able to be with them in a beautiful place, celebrating them, their generosity and their joyous occasion, calling to thank them, texting to thank them again, booking our tickets, not only accepting their generosity, but accepting the joy, embodying their generosity, which they gave so generously in the gift that was necessary for us to enjoy them because... They love us because they love us. They want us in their beautiful place. They want to celebrate this joyous occasion with us. And they knew that we couldn't get there on our own. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have the gift of eternal life. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, your word tells us that uh, this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Lord, I don't want to uh, lose the immensity of the reality uh, of John 3.16 by rushing off into, well, what does that mean I have to do? How do I have to apply it? Uh, Protect my heart from myself, God. Allow me to experience you, to enjoy you, the radical nature of your invitation, of your gift, of the truth of the gospel, how different your holiness is from the best of our humanity. God, you are good. Our world does experience some of your goodness, uh, But there is so much brokenness, so much evil, so much death, so much chaos. And we know those things are true in our own lives. We don't want to cover ourselves up as we come to church or only consider the scriptures through the best of ourselves. Uh, God, allow us to be appreciative in response to the truth of your word. To realize that your posture and your position towards humanity is one of fixed, absolute love. God, we desire to know you, to interact with you in accordance with the truth so that we can love ourselves, we can love our neighbors, and by doing so, you can receive the glory. God, if it weren't for you, we would have no hope. So as we worship, as we uh, conclude our time of considering your word, I pray that hope is the thing that we would cling on to, the hope of the reality that you love us, you've done something about it, and we can accept that. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.